This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. in Matthew's Gospel and we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now all the scriptures which I'm going to read from and all the quotes, they're going to come up behind me so you don't need to be flicking through your Bible but we're going to spend quite a lot of time in Romans 6. So if you do want to turn somewhere you can put your finger into Romans 6 and we will get to there shortly. Now um, at the point of the story Jesus um, has lived his life on earth, he has um, done his ministry He has been preaching, he has been teaching, he's been performing miracles. And then he is crucified, and he dies, and he's buried in the tomb. And then, on that third day, on that Sunday, on that Easter Sunday, he rises again by the power of God. And then he appears to various individuals and various groups of people, and at one point he appears to like 500 people. And he appears um, quite a lot of times to his disciples, his 11 remaining disciples, And he tells his disciples, this is shortly before he goes, he tells his disciples to wait on the mountain in Galilee. And then he comes along and he says this to them. And you will probably recognize this. He says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So first of all, Jesus is telling his disciples about his authority. He's seeing that he is Lord of all, that he is Lord of heaven and of earth. And then we are singing that in one of the songs just now. Then he tells them what they are to do. They are to go and make disciples, to make other followers of Jesus. And a disciple in the Bible is someone who follows Jesus, someone who follows the life, a life patterned after Jesus, who follows his teachings. So we have who Jesus is, We have what they are to do, and then we have how they are to do it. And they are to do this. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Notice there is an order in here. Yeah, There is an order. First of all, it's baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the second is how they live. One follows the other. It's not the other way around. It's not like you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus, and then you're baptised into his name. It is one follows the other. Now, moving on from then, Jesus ascends to heaven, and we move on a few weeks, and we've got the story of Pentecost. We've got Pentecost, which Christopher preached on last week, and that was excellent. And Jesus has left them. He's ascended to heaven, and he tells them before he goes to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So they're in Jerusalem, they wait, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit in quite a dramatic way, as Christopher described last week. And they start to do what Jesus told them to do, that of going and making disciples. 
Now, in Pentecost, like, thousands of people descended on Jerusalem for this festival. There would have been people there from different countries, uh, speaking different languages. And then the 11 remaining disciples, they stand up, and Peter is the one who addresses the crowd first. And he starts to talk from the Old Testament. And he's saying, talks about the promise of the Messiah from the Old Testament, and he talks about the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, he goes, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then the scripture carries on and it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So again, we are told who Jesus is, that he is Lord. And his hearers know that they need to respond to this. They need to respond to this Jesus, that this demands a response and that this is important. So Peter replies, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord, our God, will call. Now that day, over 3,000 people came down to the waters for baptism and they responded with repentance and faith in who Jesus is. Now, repentance is a turning around. It's a turning away. It's a turning away from living your life one way to living your life another way. And when these uh, first century Jews came down, they would have known that they were turning from one life and turning towards a way of living for Jesus and following Jesus. Now, now Jazz and Katie, they have both responded to the gospel. They've already responded to the gospel. They have responded and with repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus. And as they step into the waters of baptism, they are expressing their repentance and their faith in Jesus. Now, I've known Jazz for about seven to eight years. Um, we, we bonded over a shared pain, I would say. We, uh, we support the same football team. And it's been, a, it's been a painful seven or eight years, but that's how we bonded. But I think Jazz initially, and we're going to hear from Jazz in a moment and hear his story. But initially, uh, I think it was through football, um, but Jazz got to know a few of the guys. And then he connected with other people in church. He came along to a lot of our pub quizzes and a few other events we did. And I remember sitting opposite Jazz in a pub and him saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe in Jesus. There was at one point no faith. There was at one point no faith, but now there is faith, which he is expressing today. Peter says, you know, the promise is for all of you and all of you who are far off. And Jazz, at one point, he was far off. He was far off, but the promise was for him. And many of us who have been baptised already, who are Christians, you know, at one point too, we were far off. We were far off, but God called us. God called us, and he has called Katie, and he has called Jazz. He has called us. Maybe God is calling you today. Now, as the New Testament story progresses, you know, the gospel is preached, so they go and make disciples. They keep preaching this gospel. And uh, disciples are made, and churches are formed. Churches are planted. And we see the emergence of Paul the Apostle, who became the most dominant um, New Testament writer. And he uses the term in Christ when referring to Christians. He doesn't use the word Christian. He uses the word in Christ. I think the term Christian came later after the Bible was written. 
And what he is saying when he calls Christians, you know, that they're the in Christ, they're in Christ, what he's saying is that they are one with Christ. It's what we call union with Christ. And Paul often uses the example of Christian marriage to help us understand. Today we're going to be using uh, the example of marriage and military to help uh, us understand certain points, mainly because that, that is what Paul does. He uses marriage, marriage and military to help us to understand Now, on your wedding day, you invite family and friends to a service, to a celebration, and that's when you say your vows to each other. You make that commitment to each other. You say what you're going to do. And you say it in front of your friends and the family, and you say it in the presence of God, don't you? And there's incredible power in that. When I got baptised myself, I got baptised when I was 14, and uh, I had my, my family there, I had the church community there, I had some friends from school come along as well. And I went to a, a baptism class and they were using the, the language of public declaration. And I said in my talk, you know, this is my public declaration. This is my public announcement that I am his, that I am his followers. And there was tremendous power in that, in that public commitment. But there is something more powerful going on in baptism. You know, when you marry someone, you know, according to the Bible you become one flesh. When you marry, two people become one flesh. You become one flesh in body and in life. And when he is using the term in Christ, he is talking about our oneness with Christ, about us being in union with Christ. And what that means is that what is true for Jesus becomes true for us. You know, Jesus was the perfect man. He never sinned. You know, he was spotless. There's no one else in history that we can say that about. No one else in history we can say that about. He was sinless. He was spotless. But when God looks at us, what he sees is he's Jesus. He sees Jesus' perfect record. Jesus' perfect record is accredited to us. It's imputed into us. He sees Jesus' perfection when he sees us. And there's something quite liberating about that, something quite freeing about that. And there's something which, you know, that can cause a boldness in us to approach our God. But... Before we are in Christ, you know, there's something happen. Something happens. And baptism is a symbol of this. Now, in Paul's letter to the Roman church, Paul talks about baptism being a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. So when we go down into the waters, you know, we are completely submerged. We go completely under the waters. That is a symbol of death and burial. It's not about washing away anything. It's about death and burial. And when we come up out of the waters, that is a symbol of resurrection. I'm going to read from Paul. He says this in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that those of us who were baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now for those of us in Christ, we have, and this is in the past tense, we have died and been buried. We were baptised into Jesus' death and we have died. And the death that we have died is the death to sin. Now sin is not a word we use much in our culture. We don't use it much in our culture, uh, but the Bible uses it quite a lot. And in its broader sense, sin explains some of the problems we have in the world. The problems affecting us in the world now are a result of sin. 
greed, the lust for power, dishonesty. You know, these are the things which are impacting our world now. But at an individual level, you know, sin can explain the shame we sometimes feel. For we all have done things we know we ought not do. We've all done things or said things or thought things we know we ought not to have done. Similarly, we don't do the things we know we should do. The Bible says, you know, if, if you know the good you should do and you don't do it, you sin. And we have all been there. Now, one of the many objections to Christianity, certainly amongst some of my friends, is that it limits your freedom. It limits your freedom. You know, you want to do what you want to do. You want to do whatever you want to desire. You know, if it feels good, just do it, is a mantra. You know, you, you know I don't want anything to restrict me. I don't want any person, any book, any religion, anything to restrict me. I want to do what I want to do. So what if I do sin? So what if I do sin? And this is our modern, secular idea of freedom. So what? Do what you want. But the problem with sin is that there is an enslaving nature to sin. So sin, according to the Bible, is not just an action, not just an inaction, but it is a power. It's a power. And... The problem is when you just go with what you desire and keep doing what you desire, keep doing what you want, living without any restrictions, you come to a point where you just can't turn it off, you just can't stop it, and sometimes that thing can turn on you. That thing can turn on you. Just ask someone with huge credit card debt, they have a lot of stuff, everything they desired, yet a long journey to get out of debt, or just ask addicts or someone who can't stop looking at pornography you know what started out as fun and good you know that dopamine hit you know that can turn on you that can turn you and begin to wreak havoc in your life and in your relationships it's like a prison you can't get out because there is something in control of you but being dead to sin means that sin no longer calls the shots in our life it no longer reigns in our life. It no longer can demand of us. Now, even as believers, we might hear that statement and be like, well, are you sure? Because I am aware of sin in my own life. Tim Keller, he's a pastor from New York, and he uses a military metaphor to help us understand this. He says, if a wicked military force had complete control of a country and a good army had invaded the good army could give the capital and the seat of government and communication back to the people. But the out-of-power soldiers could still live out in the bush. This guerrilla force could create havoc for the new rightful government. It could even impose its will on part of the country, even though it could never get back into power. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer in you or that it has no more power and influence within you. It does, but sin can no longer dictate you. Though you may obey it, and though, the Bible predicts, you will obey it, you, have, you no longer have to obey it. You have died to it. It can be dead to you. How can we, and why would we, live in it any longer? You know, do you know that there is a new power in your life? Paul says in Colossians that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness 
and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And this is the Son with all power and authority. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who rules our life now. We are in his kingdom. We're no longer in the dominion of darkness. We are in his kingdom. So we do not have to obey. Um, If you are in Christ, there is a new king in town and a new power in the city of your life. Now, Paul continues to encourage us. We're going to read more from Romans. Romans 6, he says, For if we have been united with him in in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul's logic is that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. His death was once and for all, and sin has been put to death. The old life has finished. Now we have a new life to live in Christ. And it's a permanent change of status. To use the marriage metaphor again, you know, once you are married, you have a new life to live and you can enjoy the benefits of marriage. And I'm talking about sort of historic Christian marriage here. On your wedding day, you wake up on your wedding day and you're not a husband, you're not a wife. But at the end of the day, when you go to bed, you are a husband and a wife. You know, your status has changed. On account of saying, I do, in the presence of God and in the presence of your friends and family, your status has changed. And when you sign that legal document, your status has changed in the name of the law. And it's the same when you respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. The change of status is permanent. You are in Christ. You can no longer be out of Christ. And you can start to enjoy the benefits of being in union with Christ. And I'm going to name a few. So first of all, you get a security. If you're in Christ, you have a security. You are adopted as sons and daughters. You are adopted into his family. He is your father. You are his sons and daughters. And a good father who's adopted you can't unadopt you. You are always adopted. You get added into a community. You get added into the community of his people. Peter, the one who preached at Pentecost, he says in his his writing in the New Testament, he says, once you weren't a people, now you are a people with God. You get added into the people of God. You have brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. You are added into the people of God. You get community. You get forgiveness of sins. I've already said you get Jesus' perfect record. You get his righteousness imputed to you. You have power over sin. Sin no longer dictates you and enslaves you. You have power over that sin. You have companionship because you have a relationship with God where he speaks and you can speak to him. You have that relationship. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we learned about last week. And the Holy Spirit transforms you and helps you to live a life um, patterned after the life of Jesus. It says the Holy Spirit is an inheritance guaranteeing a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, that we have eternal life, that we have hope beyond this life. And we also have hope in this life because Jesus, God, uses our failures 
everything which happens in our life, and he uses it for the good of those who love him. And this is not an extortive lift. And we could go around the room, and other people, you could say, you know, what are the benefits of being in Christ? And we could have spend hours just learning about the benefits of being in Christ. But Paul just doesn't give us this good news and leave us there. He also tells us how to live it out. You know, you know when you become a husband or a wife... You don't necessarily know how to live as one, do you? Now, I've got friends who I talk about about their marriages, and they are still learning how to be a husband. Um, It's an ongoing, it seems to be an ongoing thing. And it's the same with being a disciple. So I have been a Christian um, for a long time. I became a Christian when I was a child. So I've done 30 plus years in Christ. 30 plus years in Christ. And I am still learning how to be a disciple. You never quite make it. I've never, you know, I haven't nailed this thing yet. I'm still learning how to be a disciple. And Paul helps us, and he says this, I'm going to read some more. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. So this counting ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ, is not some kind of wishful thinking, or taking a leap of faith, or mustering up some kind of spiritual courage. No, it's, it's kind of like an accounting term. So when you do a profit and loss account, so imagine you're owning a small business, you're doing a profit and loss account. What you want to know is you want to know the fact of your financial state. You want to know the fact. You want to reckon with what is the truth, what is the fact of my financial state. That's what you want to know. You want to get to the truth. And that's what Paul is telling us to do. He is telling us to reckon with the truth. Reckon with the truth of what Jesus has done, that we are dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And it's from there, that's how we move on with our Christian life. To use a military metaphor again, uh, Christ is now the power at work in our lives. You know, we are dead to sin. Remember the image of, which Tim Keller's pictured, the image of, you know, Soldiers, the out-of-power soldiers have been driven out, but they can still try and cause havoc. Paul continues to use military metaphor, and he says, you know, put to death. Put to death whatever is of the sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You know, this, these things no longer have power over you, therefore put them to death. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. We seem to... Paul seems to present two choices. Either we offer ourselves to sin or we offer ourselves to God. We're told not to offer any part of ourselves to sin, but to offer every part of ourselves to God. I'll say that again. We're told not to offer any part of ourselves to sin, but to offer every part of ourselves to God. And question, when he says every part of yourself, what does, he, does he mean every part of yourselves? Yeah, yeah. Does that include what you do with your body? Yes. yes. You know, we are, we're integrated persons. What we do in our body, with our body, affects our, affects our whole. 
And it matters to God because he has made us as integrated persons. So that has implications on so many aspects of his life. What we put into us, exercise, service to others, rest, it has impacts on everything. But it also includes our faculties. Yeah? What we consider, what we dwell upon, what we gaze upon, what we give our attention to, what we learn about. We are to offer every part of ourselves up to God as an instrument of righteousness. Now, over the last years, I've been continually convicted about how much of my attention gets taken away to my phone. How much of my attention is stolen away by my phone? You know, in the supermarket queue, I'm on my phone. When I go, you know, I'm on my phone quite a lot. And it steals my attention. I've just been convicted that, you know, I want to offer up my attention, the attention which is going elsewhere to other places, that attention, I want to offer that up to God to see what he can do with it. And so I ask you, what about you? Are there parts of yourself you are offering up to sin, either willingly, knowingly, or by mistake? What parts of yourself do you need to offer up to God and to see what he can do with it? Have you ever wondered, have you ever considered what God can do with you if you offer every part of yourself up to him? What you do, what you think about every part of you. I think about the disciples. Now there's nothing about the disciples which makes you think that they are going to change the world. Yet they did change the world. You know, they did change the world. I think about Peter, you know, he was a fisherman who followed Jesus. And the early part of his discipleship didn't really go well. You know, he was the one who would argue with the disciples. He wanted to be first. He was a bit of a loud mouth and he often put his foot in it. But he was the one who said, you know, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. And then Jesus says, actually, you're going to deny me three times. And lo and behold, when it came down to it, when it really mattered, Peter denied him three times. It's safe to say, at that point, he hadn't offered every part of himself up to God to be used. But we can look at what, Paul, uh, what God eventually did with Peter, can't we? You know, He was the one, when he was filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, he was the one who spoke first, he was the one who preached, and 3,000 people were saved that day. He planted significant churches. He offered his whole being up to God as an instrument of righteousness. You may have been following Jesus for decades. You know, it may have been decades since you got baptised. But your discipleship has not finished. Your discipleship has not finished. And you can offer all of yourself up to God for him to use. Now, Christopher is going to take over in just a moment. um, And he's going to lead the rest of this part of the meeting. But, you know, today... Maybe you have never heard the gospel before. You've never heard this sort of stuff before. And, you know, we've been talking about Jesus being Lord. We've been talking about Jesus' sacrifice. We've been talking about dying to sin and being alive with Christ. And you can respond to the gospel today. You can respond with repentance and faith. And you can die to sin and come alive in Christ. Thank you.
For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.